want to thank the worship team for really preparing us um, today and, and leading us into God's presence. And, you know, this issue of holiness that you've, we've been singing about, you know, I, I think sometimes that word holy is a word that we use a lot without really pausing to think about what we mean. Uh, and, and I think as I look back over the 23, 24 years that I've worked within the church and just my life experience growing up in the church, I, I think there's a definite need among God's people to recover a, a picture and, and a vision for what God's holiness is, not only in relationship to Him, but what that means as we relate to, as we relate to Him, as we enter into relationship with Him. I remember a few years ago being troubled by an article that I read that was discussing. It shared the story of uh, Joe Theismann, the uh, quarterback, Hall of Fame quarterback, retired many years ago. Um, but it was, a, it was a very personal account talking about the conflicts he was having with his second wife as they were going through a divorce. And, and when he was confronted with the fact that he had intentionally entered into a, uh, an affair in trying to justify his actions with this affair, his response was, God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. Now, there's a lot wrong with that statement. One, he's talking about himself in the third person. It's always kind of weird. Um, but that idea of God wants Joe Theismann to be happy, it's as if like God wanting our happiness is somehow negating God's call to holiness and a call to obey his word. And, and as I reflected on that, I remember when I saw that years ago, I, I thought when well, that really is as harsh as that statement is, I, I often see that that's a, that's a trap that sometimes we as believers can fall into. That, that we look throughout the scripture and we see the focus on relationship and that God wants to bless us and that he wants us to be walking in relationship with him. And, and sometimes we separate that out from the issue of walking in obedience and walking in relationship with a holy God, a holy and perfect God. And, and again, we're going to unpack that theme of what that means uh, today. But I, I want us to just to think in your own life do you have a picture of God's holiness and a vision or an image of God's holiness that as you approach him in relationship to him, that it impacts the way you approach him? That it impacts the way that you live your life from day to day? That you have a picture of God's holiness, the holiness that we've sung about today, both in old songs and new, talking about God's holiness. What's amazing is we're, we're given glimpses in the scripture of, of scenes of, of worship in heaven both in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, which were really the inspiration for the song, the last song that we did this morning. In, in, in each of these glimpses of worship in heaven, whether it's Isaiah's vision or these visions from John's vision in, in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, you, you see all the focus is on God, Father, the Son, Isaiah. It's a picture of God on the throne in the throne room, and, and in Revelation, you have the picture of God, including the lamb, the son, and, and that people bow down and they cry out nonstop, continually. Something to think about when we complain about words repeating in songs. Uh, the two images that we see in scripture are repeating the same exact words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So God's holiness is clearly something that's significant that the only images we have of, of worship in heaven 
is focused on this characteristic of his holiness. You know, we, we can talk about a lot of different characteristics and attributes of God, and, and Pastor Steve did a few weeks ago when we, as we walked through this mission 119 and looking at different parts of Scripture. He looked at Psalm 119, and we talked about God being all-powerful, all-knowing, and always-present. And, and those are traits about who God is, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, that, that we celebrate in who God is. But God's holiness is another theme that we see throughout the Scripture. And, and, it, and it has a direct bearing, not only in our understanding, our picture and vision of who God is, but it has a direct bearing on how we approach him and how we enter in relationship with him. We're going to read Psalm 99. And again, for those of you that are walking through Psalm, or walking through Mission 119, uh, we've just been intentionally in a lot of weeks just picking a passage that you maybe were walking through that week. Uh, so this is either something you just recently read or something you're going to read. Um, but Psalm 99 focuses on this theme of God's holiness, but really you've been seeing this throughout Genesis and Exodus. And, and uh, those of you that have, have hopefully not gotten too stuck in Leviticus, uh, you, you see a central theme of God's holiness. But we're going to read Psalm 99, and then we're going to watch a video uh, from the Bible Project that I, it's a little longer than normal than I normally would share but it's too good not to share in the sense of reminding us of God's holiness being broader and bigger in our understanding than what we often think about it. But let's go ahead and read Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. You've seen this theme of worship and holiness being connected. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also among those called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In a pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them, and they kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. O Lord God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. There's something about God's holiness that is central for us to understand what it means to walk in relationship with him and to worship him. We have to have a vision and a picture of God's holiness and understand that that impacts the way in which we approach him. And as Christians, I believe it increases our gratitude for what Christ has done for us to make a way for us to approach a holy and a perfect God. But let's go ahead and watch this video. Again, this is a little longer than what I normally would share. Um, and, um, but it is the Bible project and their description talking about God's holiness and that theme throughout the scripture. We'll watch that and then we'll unpack that a little bit more. The word holy before, or at least saying it in a church song once or twice. Connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. 
What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, this hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development. 
this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But... Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. realize we could probably take the next six weeks to unpack everything that was shared in that video. Um, if, I definitely encourage you to check out the Bible Project. Uh, they have a lot of good resources. But, you know, that I think typically growing up in the church, when I heard holy, I immediately went to the moral aspect of it, which is a part of uh, what, what in the video you see, the issue of God's pure, being called to have to be pure, to be in God's holy presence. But, you know, there, there, this video, I think, was helpful to understand that God's holiness is bigger than just the idea of moral purity. Uh, that's part of it, but it's not the full picture. And, and, and there's this idea of God being unique, set apart. Uh, something uh, in sometimes you've maybe heard people describe God as the holy other, that, that he's not within the created world. He's outside of all that he has created, is connected to the theology of God's transcendence, that he's above his creation. Because most of the world religions and, and that we see even today, and definitely what Israel would have been experiencing in their day, all of the gods that were worshipped were, were viewed as being part of the created order that they could manipulate that they can control. And then God calls Abraham and God calls his people Israel to walk in relationship with them or with him. And yet he reveals himself as something above his creation, that he is the creator of all things. He's the, he's the, the most powerful being in the universe and he's the creator of all things. He's the source of life. He's wholly unique. He's set apart. He's different. This idea, this picture of God's holiness is, is, is reminding us of just how 
distinct and unique God is and that, that when we worship him, it, those images that we see in Isaiah that we're going to look at here in a moment or in Revelation that we sang about this morning, it's we see God and we see his glory, we see his greatness, we see his power, we see him for who he is. And the only appropriate response is to declare his holiness. That he is distinct and he is unique. That he is set apart. He is, he is set apart from all else that we experience in this life. Isaiah, if you, Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4, I think these words are on the screen. Gives us a picture. It's hard for me to talk about God's holiness without going to Isaiah 6 because it's such a central passage. Uh, so I know if you've heard me preach on God's holiness before, we've been in Isaiah before. But in Isaiah's vision, it says in verse 1, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. There's an aspect of God's holiness that, that is focusing on God being set apart. He's unique. He is the holy other. He, is, he, is a, he created all things, but he's not a part of what he has created. We can't go to God and try to manipulate him. We can't go to God and try to control him, to try to push the right buttons to get what we want out of a relationship with him. When we stand in God's presence, we realize that we're undone, that we really don't deserve to be in that present in the presence of God, and, and so that that's part of it is just God's uniqueness, and and that the heart of the word that's translated holy in the Scripture is that idea of being set apart, being distinct, and and you can see how that applies to God and who He is, but then when God calls His people and says, "Be holy as I am holy." He also calls us to be set apart and distinct from the rest of the world. And, and that brings out that second aspect of God's holiness. It, it, it's not just the idea of his nature, that he is above all of the created world, that he is the holy other, that he is unique and above his creation. There's also that aspect that he is perfect in all ways, that he is without flaw. That while we can look at our lives and we can look at anything else in creation and see that as wonderful as something might be, we, we realize that only God is perfect. And, and we see that perfection not only in his power, we see that perfection in his, in his moral goodness, in, in his purity. And, and, and it gives us that picture not only of God being set apart and unique, but that he is perfect in character, he's perfect in who he is, and really, when we have that picture of his holiness, we realize none of us really are in a place to stand in his presence. And that, and that brings us that issue. Anytime God's holiness is talked about, we, we see this theme of, well, how do people approach him? If this God who is holy, set apart, and perfect wants a relationship with people that are far from perfect, how, how, do, we, how do we approach a God like this? And that's when we, those of you that have been reading through Genesis and Exodus and now Leviticus, you're seeing this picture of God calling a people to himself. And, and, he's, and he's described himself in his holiness and he invites people to be in relationship with him. But he does so knowing that, that for them to walk in relationship with him, 
they were going to have to orient their whole life, every aspect of their life around living in a way that they can walk with and, and be in relationship with this holy and perfect God. Remember, in going back to Exodus, the very beginning of or early part of Moses' story. Remember, Moses is out and he's, his eye catches this burning bush. And, and he's like, well, I'm going to check this out. He approaches the burning bush and verses Exodus 3, 5 through 6, um, God speaks to him. And, and, and this is what's recorded in these verses. It says, then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. You have two aspects here that God, God is present in this moment calling Moses. He's gonna, this is Moses' call to be the one who would be sent to Egypt to deliver his people. But God reveals himself in this moment to Moses and, and you see this call of taking off your sandals because the very presence of where God is speaking to Moses is declared as being holy ground. That somehow the presence of God has actually even had an impact on that location where Moses is at. And the only appropriate response is for Moses to take off his sandals to recognize God's holy presence in that moment. And Moses has this reaction at the end of verse 6. He says, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And, and that's, that's what we see from Moses on. We see this, this idea of approaching God and his holiness is, is dangerous business. I heard a few chuckles about the priest kind of collapsing in the video. Um, uh, but that's the picture. I mean, the, the priest, they tied a bell to the priest. If you've been walking through the Mission 119, you heard Reverend Soper talk about that, that the, the priest had to have a bell on to where if the priest didn't come out after being in the Holy of Holies and doing all the ceremonial uh, worship to, to represent God's people, that if, if he didn't come back out or they didn't hear the bell ringing, they knew that something happened to the priest. There, there's this picture of, of it's dangerous to be in the presence of a holy and perfect God. We see Moses. Remember the scene where Moses goes up, and some of you have just read this, but Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and, and, and the instruction is the people are not even to approach the edge of the mountain because of God's holy presence. There's a danger in God's presence, and it's what Isaiah goes on after having this vision, what you see in Isaiah 6, in the first four verses that we read. In verse 5, we see Isaiah's reaction. He says in verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, an un, of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the reality is when we stand in, in God's presence, it's in that moment, like Isaiah, that you begin to very clearly see your own sin. You begin to see your own, you see perfection and you look and you see your own imperfection. You see God in his holiness and his perfect character and you realize, I, I really have no business standing in his presence. Isaiah describes his flaw in his own life as being a man of unclean lips. And what's amazing is later when we get to God's provision, where does God touch Isaiah with the hot coal? His lips. 
God, God sees the need and he invites us to be in relationship with him, but there's this sense that we, I think sometimes as Christians, we focus so much on the relationship that Christ wants with us that we sometimes lose the sight of who it is that we're in relationship with. And, and, and we need to make sure that we're taking the time to, to recapture a picture of God's holiness, his power and his greatness, and that he is distinct. He can't be controlled, he can't be manipulated. That he is perfect and yet he calls us to be in his presence and yet when we go into his presence we know that it's dangerous to be in the presence of a holy God. You know, that's, if you've been reading, how many of you are right now reading through Leviticus or you just did that if you're doing Mission 119 or, you've, okay, or you have read through Leviticus or struggled through Leviticus? You're reading through all these laws and you're like, what does that have to do with it? what my life is going, I mean, what I'm experiencing? I appreciate Reverend Soper's explanation uh, of some of the laws that were like the um, the goat in its mother's milk and, and talking about the, if you haven't, don't know it, you're going to have to go get into Mission 119 and listen to Reverend Soper to explain, have him explain that. Um, but he, but he, he talks about the cultural things and really it's a, again and again, God calling Israel to be distinct from their neighbors. And, and so some of those things that he called Israel to are very different than what we're, we might be specifically called to today. And yet the idea that God calls us, if we walk in relationship with him, if we walk with him, that we're to be distinct and different from the world around us, that's a consistent theme that we see from Old and New Testament. That God calls us to be in relationship with him. And, and what's amazing to me as I was walking through Leviticus again and through this process, is I started making a note of all the different categories of laws I mean, you have the Ten Commandments, which I think we're all, we understand. Those are all those all still fully apply for for all people, including the Christian believer. But then you have all those ritual laws and ceremonial laws and all these these very detailed things that God gave His people at that time, that governed how they were to live in relationship with Him. And what's amazing to me that I think is important is to look at how broad it is. There were laws with regard to diet what they could eat and not eat. There were, there were laws with regard to how they related to their neighbor. There were, there were laws with related to their most intimate aspect of who they were and their sexual, their sexual lives and their sexual activity. That God gave direction of what was appropriate and what was inappropriate. You see scriptures through Leviticus of talking about the govern how we deal with business and having scales that are fair and just. What's amazing to me that stood out more than anything in the last, my last reading is in the midst of all these other laws about business and caring for our neighbor and sexuality and, and all these other things, there's a consistent theme again and again too of a responsibility to the sojourner, reminding Israel that they were sojourners, that they were exiles living in a foreign land and that there's a responsibility. And again, you don't think it's there? Go back and read Leviticus. It's all over. So God's call to holiness is not just an issue about my relationship to him. It's about how I relate to other people and relate to the world around me. And it's, and it's very holistic in, in what we see in Leviticus is that, that God is calling us to, in relationship with him, every aspect of our life has to come under his reign. This issue of God's holiness, we see throughout the scripture. And, and, and when you read through Leviticus, I think one of the first questions is, okay, look, do I gotta, 
which of these do I follow, which of these do I not follow, and, and that's a whole other series of looking at the, how the relationship with the law and what, how Jesus fulfills the law and what we as Christians have a responsibility to. But it's important that we understand that God's law, Paul says in Romans, he highlights very clearly that God's law pointed out the fact and, and helped us to see the sin in our life and how we fall short of God's holiness. Uh, in Romans 7, 7, he, Paul says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. Part of the law is to prepare us for the fact that we understand that we all, no matter how hard we try, we're never going to be able to perfectly fulfill God's law. And yet God's law points out very clearly uh, that, that we fall short. That, that, that like Isaiah, we stand in the presence of God and we realize, I'm a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips. I can't stand in the presence of a holy and perfect God. And, 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 and no matter how hard we try, we're going to fall short of God's perfect holiness. Paul goes on to talk, though, in Romans 8, 1, that in describing the, the work of God's Spirit in our life, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the forgiveness and we receive the righteousness of Christ into our life, that we enter into a state that we don't have to live in fear, because what Paul says in Romans 8, 1 through 2, he says, therefore, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of of sin and death. Through Jesus, we have the authority to be able to stand in God's presence, his holy presence, not based on our own righteousness, based on our own holiness, but based on Christ living in us and in the righteousness of Christ in our hearts and in our lives when we surrender to him and make him Lord of our lives. What we see when we look at the New Testament and we look at what Jesus did for us we see what Isaiah foreshadowed in, in his vision. In that image where Isaiah is crying out, I'm a man of unclean lips, woe is me, I'm a dead man. We then immediately goes on to see God's provision for Isaiah so that he could stand in his midst. And the video did a powerful job of showing how Isaiah was transformed through the touch of the coals onto his lips. We as Christians, we celebrate God's provision for us. That the, the only way we can stand in the presence of a holy God is to put our faith and our trust fully in what Jesus has done for us. And, and so I believe we not only need to capture a vision for God's holiness, we need to celebrate God's provision for us in Jesus. In the Psalm passage, in Psalm 99 that we read, we saw uh, the description of Moses and Aaron serving as priests and Samuel and, and the work that they did. The, the priests were representing God's people. They, were the, they went between God and the people. We understand that as Christians, Jesus has done that for us. Jesus is the perfect high priest. He is the perfect intermediary. He is the one who makes the way for us to be in relationship with a holy and perfect God. In a very real way, what Jesus did is, is, fulfill, is the fulfillment of what we see in Isaiah 6, 6 through 7, 
as Isaiah is crying out that he's a dead man, verse six says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with, his tong- with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Paul, throughout the book of Romans, gives a, an, an elaborate description of, of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Our sin, Jesus took upon himself upon the cross, and, and he has made the way for us to not only be forgiven, but that when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, we can have the confidence that we can stand in the presence of the, the holy God who has called us. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When our sin, what we earn, what we deserve from our sin is death. But at the heart of salvation is understanding that Christ, through his death and his resurrection, has given us the free gift of eternal life. That Jesus took our sin upon himself so that we can be forgiven and that by Christ coming and living in us and through us, that God, the Father, when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ and we're able to stand in his presence. It's what is said in Hebrews 4, 16. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. As Christians, I, I believe we need to re- continue to remember and celebrate God's provision through Jesus Christ along with keeping that vision of God's holiness. Having a vision of God's holiness only, I believe, increases our understanding of just how much we are to be grateful for what Jesus has done for us. They're not at odds with each other. God's grace and his mercy and his love and what we see in the cross is not at odds with with God's call to holiness and representing who he is as a holy and perfect God. And, And that brings us to the third piece is that it's not only, we not only have to recapture a vision of God's holiness and celebrate what Christ has done for us and God's provision for us. But as Christians, we're, we're told, just like Israel was told, we're told to strive to be holy. In 1 Peter 1, 14 through 17, it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Look at that that phrase, be holy in all of your conduct. That idea of conduct is is our behavior. It's it's how we live our lives. This is consistent with what we see in Leviticus and and how God addressed diet, God addressed um, relationship, he addressed our business, he addressed our sexuality, and he addressed how we relate to the sojourner. He, He related to all those things. Every aspect of life was to be lived in relationship to the God who had called them. Here in First Peter, this call of being holy as, as God is holy, we're reminded again that we're to be holy in all of our conduct. Too often, I think, we compartmentalize our lives. We have certain parts of our life that we give to God, and we have certain parts of our life that we try to keep off to the side. We don't want to talk about it. And, and what we see from Old to New Testament is God, when he calls us to be in relationship with him, he wants everything. And, and for us to be 
holding on to parts of our life or, or to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a good, I'm going to follow God, I'm going to be in church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these spiritual things, but I'm going to cheat people in my work. Or I'm going to ignore God's word and, and, and a part of my life and, and, and have these uh, private life that's inconsistent with my public life. God calls us to be holy in all of our conduct, which means that every aspect of our life needs to be surrendered and consecrated to God. And, and that really is, again, getting back to that idea. The, the root understanding of holiness is that idea of distinct or being set apart. And, and this is where we need, in this idea of how do we strive to be holy, how can we as God's people and as Christ followers strive to be holy is, is we need to understand that it begins with setting our lives apart and dedicating or setting our lives apart and surrender to God and dedicating ourselves to him and his purposes. And, and that's again something we see throughout the scriptures through the Old Testament is that you could take something that's ordinary and like a, an instrument or a spoon or something that would be taken out of ordinary use and dedicated to be used in the temple, it became sacred, it became holy because it was taken out of the ordinary and it was dedicated to God. That's the picture of what God calls us to, to be set apart and dedicated to him. It's what in Leviticus 11:44, when when God said, for I am the Lord, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourself therefore. And be holy as I am holy. It's, it's setting yourself apart. It's dedicating yourself to God and his purpose. It's making sure that we're getting into, into the New Testament and looking at how Jesus describes life in the kingdom. And we look at his words and realize Jesus doesn't really make it any easier because he actually, when he addresses adultery or when he addresses anger, murder, Jesus takes things to another level and says, look, if, you, if you've had hatred in your heart, it's as, as if you've murdered or you've, you've harmed your brother. If you've lusted in, a, in your heart after a woman, it's as if you've committed the act of adultery. Jesus calls us to a deeper level of holiness, but it's a holiness that can only be fulfilled when we are fully surrendered to let Jesus live in us and through us. We will always fall short. But Jesus, when we're surrendered, Jesus can live his life through us and, and lead us to a place where we represent him and his holiness in this world. The Apostle Paul summarized it in this, this way, and again, verses that I quote often, but I think it's central to Christian life. Romans 12, 1 through 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. This idea of surrender is, 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 is our way of worshiping God, that we look at everything Jesus has done for us. The only reasonable response is to surrender our lives to him. And he goes on, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Today, I just want to encourage you to look at your own life and ask how you approach God. Are, are, you, are you in a place where you're recapturing a picture of God and his greatness and his holiness? And, and does that help you understand just how much God loves us and that he sent his son to die for us, to, to take our sin upon himself and, and that we can celebrate what, what God has given us? in his provision to deal with the sin that, that allows us 
to approach a relationship with a holy and perfect God, trusting not in our own ability, but trusting in what Jesus has done for us. But then in looking at what Jesus has done for us, then strive to live a holy life, surrender every aspect of our life to him so that Jesus can work in us and through us, so that our minds can be transformed, so that that our lives would be different than the rest of the world. God wants a relationship with us. God wants to bless us. But God also calls us to be holy as he is holy. you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, I just, I just thank you for the grace that we see and the fact that while you call us to, to walk in relationship with you and, and that every aspect of our life, Lord, needs to be changed, we realize in light of the cross and in light of what Jesus has done for us, Lord, we, our, our best, our righteousness is like filthy rags, as Isaiah says. Lord, we've all fallen short of your glory. We've all fallen short of your holiness. And we come to the cross in need of forgiveness. We come to the cross in need of your righteousness in our lives. But Lord, may we have such a vision for your greatness and your holiness that, that we're reminded of just, Lord, how much you have forgiven us of. And that we would come to the throne of grace and, and celebrate the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace that you have poured out on us through your son, Jesus. And Lord, when we think of all that Jesus has done for us, Lord, may it motivate us to that place of being set apart, fully surrendered to you, so that in every aspect of our life, Lord, we're striving to be holy as you are holy. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.